Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and this week on the Roundup, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days, and as we attempt to bring you some of our hot takes on the issues of the day in our field, international education. So as we do each week, we take our news stories from our newsletter. Uh, the themes that we cover here on the Roundup come from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays. And if you're not already subscribed to that newsletter, I'm dropping the link to that in the a link to our website where you can sign up at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. I'll also be putting the links to our most recent edition that you would get via email, as well as our LinkedIn version. Uh, we have a LinkedIn version, so if you prefer to get your international ed news via, e via email, check out our website link. And if you prefer to get it via LinkedIn, uh, there's the LinkedIn uh, coming into the into the chat as well. Uh, combined between the two, website newsletter and LinkedIn newsletter, we have over a thousand subscribers now. Very excited to have crossed that threshold in the last week and that uh, we have so many international educators that are making this newsletter a part of their weekly international edification. Uh, for those that are also listening uh, live here on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or Twitter for SMIE Consulting, thanks for joining the conversation. Welcome your comments in the chat, uh, but please do uh, become a part of the uh, of the regular listening uh, audience as well. If you prefer this, uh, maybe just catching us live for the first time today, uh, you can also download an audio-only version of the Midweek Roundup uh, on your, all your favorite podcast providers as well. So while you walk, work out, or work, uh, you'll have that as an option for getting this content each week. So thanks so much again for joining us live. And as we do each week, we, we take uh, questions uh, that we've Develop for the roundup from those news stories that we've seen. First up is, do DEI efforts, diversity, equity, inclusion, at your college align with your international recruitment? And this is a topic that has really grown in, in interest in the last three or four years on, on college campuses in the United States as uh, DEI offices have sprouted up uh, vice presidents for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and access, and other other. Uh, other other descriptors are added into that mix as well, but primarily DEI efforts uh, have, have become regular features on college campuses. Uh, we've also seen the downside of that uh, in Florida recently with uh, the governor there uh, asking for an audit of uh, public institutions spending on DEI efforts. So there's it's, it's gotten politicized, which is sad to say, but in terms of particularly on your campus, and as it relates to international programs, the question is, are they aligned? Are they, do they share common ground? Uh, a lot of the literature that's been uh, done and researched over the last few years on this topic has shown that uh, increasingly colleges are seeing the intersections, as you would say, between DEI and uh, internationalization on college campuses. Uh, there's a recent article from uh, in the NAFSA International Educator News I'll be dropping in the chat as well. So uh, unfortunately, you have to be a NAFSA member to uh, read the full article. You can get at least a snippet of it at the beginning. But uh, this really takes, uh, takes a look, a deep dive into how colleges have been uh, 
integrating internationalization into their DEI efforts or vice versa, DEI into internationalization. Obviously, internationalization covers both inbound and outbound on a lot of college campuses, uh, as well as internationalizing the, uh, the curriculum, faculty and, re and, and staff research, opportunities for exchange there, as well as the traditional inbound and outbound student flows. But uh, that piece of international, uh, where we're talking as it fits into the DEI component on college campuses, really relates to the impact of diversity uh, and how uh, institutions provide equity and access and include all the different demographics that they have on their college campus into the mix of programming, of services, all of that in terms of promotion, in terms of recognition, in terms of targeting uh, for uh, enrollment and, and such. All of that fa factors into the DEI scope. So internationalization certainly would be, in a, in a, from a layman's perspective, if you look at what diversity, equity, inclusion means. Diversity has traditionally meant uh, 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 minorities on campus, uh, p uh, people of color on campus uh, from different ethnic groups. Uh, it has expanded into um, the LGBTQ plus arena in terms of uh, dem other demographics and student groups that have particular services and needs that are uh, being either had been excluded or were not being met fully, now being included in the mix of access to a university uh, education. Uh, students with disabilities are also included in this mix. Uh, we, we've seen uh, military vets been added into the mix as well on some campuses. So we see a lot of different, uh, different elements of what DEI composes. And international, inbound international students seem to be a common element that would make sense for this, uh, this group. And, and the, the article from uh, the International Educator certainly uh, shows the, where those intersections are and makes sense and how they can be incorporated uh, regularly into um, overall institutional philosophy. And from experience, what we're doing at UNLV, uh, we have our top tier 2.0 strategy, uh, strategic plan that has been launched and the key component uh, that uh, is mentioned in that is inclusion, uh, diversity, access, and inclusion. That inclusion aspect uh, also includes international students, as that's how we're uh, fit into the larger international student enrollment plan, uh, the larger university strategic plan. International is, is is in that mix of DEI related topics. So we have a separate uh, VP that was recently hired this uh, this past summer for diversity, equity, inclusion, and uh, she brings a wealth of experience in that field. And uh, she ha has um, uh, haven't have yet to meet with her directly because I, I don't I don't work on the on the home campus. But that's from what I've heard is. Um, there's openness there to involving international uh, students more in that process and programming and all of the all the relevant pieces that go into successful implementation of DEI on campus. Uh, and obviously, there's some hurdles in that mix uh, when it comes to uh, opportunity, access to opportunity, and when it comes to uh, a public institution. And this is where a lot of the lines are drawn fairly clearly in terms, and that's by by law, unfortunately, uh, for international students is they're not in-state residents, they don't have access, they're not U.S. citizens or permanent residents that have access to financial aid that is going to be available and accessible to all U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Uh, there is in some institutional money set aside for merit aid, and that's a combined merit need aid for international students, uh, but those are limited at the undergraduate level. Uh, the graduate level, it's all merit-based, based on uh, uh, 
on ability and, and the individual programs that offer assistantships and offer scholarships. That's the, those are the categories that typically make up where international students have a, a much better chance of qualifying for aid. So that the financial aid piece at public institutions, at least, is usually the area in terms of access to the same, similar funds or uh, equity uh, Equi equitable funds for uh, levels of funding for them as opposed to their U.S. counterparts. That's where the challenges really come in in terms of making that a, a clean uh, inclusion into a DEI strategy. So what I see in terms of um, colleges and universities, it certainly makes sense uh, as an, if you're in an international office and your institution is just starting to explore DEI or has recently brought on, on board uh, staff in that, in that area. Might have been the multicultural office earlier and now it's been involved into a much larger element of university uh, life. Uh, this, is a, this is an office that you want to be connecting with, uh, the DEI office, and as an international educator. If it's not uh, you as a director of uh, international enrollment or admissions, it would, should be your uh, boss as a SIO, if there is one on your campus, that can take that le level of a conversation at a, at a top level in your institution to uh, an equ equivalent DEI uh, VP or uh, senior, senior administrative official responsible for those efforts. That's something that I think is important for, uh, for international educators to keep in mind is, is there are uh, one of the things we always talk about when, with our six P's of strategic international enrollment management, one of those significant tools you need to have is perspective, not only a global perspective on what's going on in the world and how what happens out in the wider world impacts what you do in your recruitment and on your campus for international students. It's also a perspective of what your campus is committed to. And if uh, DEI is something that's committed to, you would want to think that international student enrollment would be something that, the, and the issues that those students face once they get on campus will be part of that mix or should be part of that conversation. If it's not, how do you approach that uh, with your with your uh, senior leadership at your, at your campus? And these are conversations that are, are certainly going to be useful to have and necessary to have as you look at ways to incorporate what you're doing uh, as an enrollment management office, an international recruitment office, an international student office, uh, with the larger conversations happening on your campus related to DEI. These, you want a seat at the table is what we're saying here. Uh, and if you don't have that, it's, a, it's, it's time to find some champions on campus that can help advocate for you to be a part of that conversation. Uh, and that's really what, we, when we talk large, larger, larger visions about strategic planning and mission and vision for your, not only your campus, but your individual international unit, having this, these kind of folks around campus that can help support you in what you're trying to do in terms of grow international and student enrollments, take better care of your international students once they're on campus to make sure that their, their needs are being met services-wise and such. Certainly our campus at UNLV, we've learned a lot of lessons in the in the last three years, particularly during the pandemic, when uh, there was a group of our international students that couldn't get home because of flights, because of borders closures, closures and such, that we had to take care of. Uh, our campus basically had shut down. Everybody was working remote, but we still had students that were in the residence halls uh, because they had no place else to go. They each got their own rooms at that time at the beginning of the pandemic in the spring of 2020 uh, that uh, we had to bring food to them, uh, three meals a day. Uh, we provided services to them eventually to, to make sure they had other things to do besides sit in the rooms and take their classes online. And that's something that 
that was a real priority for our university. And it made us realize that perhaps we weren't doing as good a job as we thought we were related to uh, the services we were providing for international students. So our international student office has really undergone a transformation in the last uh, year in particular, last nine months and uh, more specifically, to look at these larger issues impacting our students, our international students, once they're on campus, beyond the immigration pieces that are essentials that they need to have to maintain their status and their safety and health. Uh, we think about the larger implications of services we provide to um, uh, ease them into their studies in terms of their arrival in, their, uh, in housing and orientation. Uh, all of these things are being reexamined on our campus because of our larger vision for international student enrollment and internationalization on the university campus as we look to grow. And the only way we'll be able to grow successfully is where if we're delivering already on the services that we're providing to our current students from overseas. Because when you look at issues that we'll cover in our next question about related to housing especially, uh, if we don't meet those very basic needs, food, shelter, housing, uh, food, food, shelter, clothing, uh, in their uh, initial few days, months on campus, we're losing that battle uh, to provide a, a successful platform on which they can build uh, themselves uh, to, and access the services they need to for academics, for career prep, for all of that. Uh, so we have really changed the way we do things at UNLV related to international student enrollment. And the piece related to DEI is a part of that larger, that, that larger strategy of inclusion and access to the services that they deserve and that, frankly, they're paying top dollar for uh, related, to, uh, related to what uh, what their domestic peers might be paying from in, sta in the state of Nevada. So uh, it's incum incumbent upon us to make sure we're delivering quality as well as uh, bringing in the quantity of students we're being expected to. And without one, you won't have the other in the future. So that's that's really a, a, our vision at UNLV in terms of what we need to do. We're not perfect. Uh, we've got a long road to go to make to expand the range of services, to deliver better quality services to our international students that are on campus. But part of that is wrapped up in the same kind of philosophy that drives DEI. And for us at UNLV, we're, 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 we're making efforts to um, align our philosophies uh, interna on international recruitment and student services related to uh, overall DEI um, approaches to student life on campus. So let's move on to our next question. Why is there a global housing challenge for international students? And when, when you think about housing challenges, I, I mentioned uh, one that we're having at UNLV. I've mentioned that a couple times in past episodes. Uh, we During the pandemic, we made the right decision at that time to convert our double rooms in all of our uh, all of our residence halls to single rooms. And as a result of that, uh, during the pandemic, any student that enrolled on campus uh, had access to housing. Single rooms were the were the default. Uh, we didn't switch back this past fall when probably we should have in, in, in hindsight. Uh, but that's a, that's something that we're, we're we're moving towards for this fall is to have uh, the maximum availability of our in our residence hall rooms so that we can serve the maximum amount of not only out-of-state domestic students but also international students in our residence halls because we do require students live on campus uh, their first year. So we'll see what happens with that in the fall. But uh, 
for in the United States, I know a number of colleges that um, you know, during the pandemic, uh, there were uh, residence halls were, uh, and this tends to be uh, more of a challenge in urban areas on the coasts and in more heavily populated areas of the country and in larger cities where housing can be at a premium entity anyway and affordable housing even more so for students uh, and students from overseas. Uh, there's a few different articles that I'll be sharing in the link, and they have to do with uh, countries like Australia and Canada uh, that have experienced uh, very significant housing challenges. Uh, we've seen, uh, I've, we've reported earlier this uh, spring, actually late winter, or late last year, early this year, uh, uh, one state in, in Australia, Queen, uh, Western Australia, had uh, the housing shortage is so significant in the urban areas that the state of Western Australia is offering uh, families who would house, be willing to house an international student, the, the government will pay them each week to do so. Uh, so that's that's how significant an issue is, that is at, at Australian universities. Uh, we see uh, the accommodation crisis for students that are returning uh, from after maybe being taking their classes online for two years. They're now looking to come back to start the school year, which in Australia uh, starts in February this month and right around now. Uh, we're seeing in, in Canada and certain provinces that are uh, less uh, heavily populated. Uh, we've seen some issues related to, um, to housing just not being available at all. So uh, there's three articles, one by The Guardian that shares, uh, shares a story of how uh, university uh, property sell-offs have heightened the dire housing shortage as students return to Australia. So uh, what has happened, some of the examples that are given in the article that uh, universities in urban areas, uh, in order to keep staff hired and not have to let people go, they sold properties uh, during the pandemic. Uh, that University of Sydney, for example, sold off more than $70 million of property in 2021, including $31 million of end-of-life terraces that provided some of the most affordable close-to-campus accommodations in the area. That's from this Guardian article. Uh, in 2021, University of Wollongong placed three of its assets on the market, including Wirona College, now operating as a privately owned student accommodation, and Market View, which is operating as a hotel. Its international college was withdrawn from sale. So those student beds uh, that uh, were in high demand uh, were sold off. And now private companies are, are running those and rents have increased significantly. Uh, in one case, the University of Technology Sydney uh, sold a facility that had a 428 bed capacity to a private provider for an estimated 95 million Australian dollars. And that's uh, the price of accommodations for those that were now looking to rent in those same properties as uh, international students, the rents were increased 15 to 20 percent. So uh, that's a difficult decision, obviously, that the institution made. But the, the, in, the, in, in their article here, it says the quote unquote was to preserve staff jobs and to avoid impacting the university's teaching and research over the pandemic. So these are some really significant uh, uh, issues here. Uh, there are also you have a double whammy with uh, scammers uh, in some of these some of these states. Uh, that uh, for in, one in Western Australia, students flying in uh, couldn't find the right place, and then uh, ended up losing some money to uh, on, uh, to a, a sadly a, a, a con artist who took them for. Uh, 
took them took them took their money and uh, now they're out deposits uh, that would have gone to an apartment and uh, from to a fly by night guy that was wasn't even didn't even have any properties to sell or uh, apartments to rent. So uh, there's a, a potential 5,000 bed shortage for, that uh, in in Western Australia that in Perth that were uh, still uh, are we're going to be expected this this uh, February March time period when students are looking to come back in. So another Pi News article said that there's an eight percent student rent hikes in Canada and Australia. So a uh, lot of lot of uh, rent and, and, and in the UK went rent increased to four point four went up four point four percent for single studio, three percent for across the rest of Europe. So uh, there's a lot of challenges out there for uh, for international educators uh, that are trying to provide housing to their international new newly arriving international students, and that's one of the most significant challenges we have right now in international higher ed. Uh, if you're on a campus that is in a more suburban or rural area, housing might not be as big an issue. Uh, you may have uh, plenty of space in your halls. Uh, and congratulations, you're in the minority on that one. But for those of us in, in uh, more urban areas that, are, that have challenges with affordable housing anyway, uh, where we don't have on-campus space enough currently to fill the to meet the demand, uh, it's a really a challenge to 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 uh, find access to area housing that might be the right quality and there might be limitations on what your university can or can't say about different landlords on in the area. Uh, how do you find make options available to students that are looking? Uh, where are the what are the outlets that you can direct them to that's going to be safe and reliable and and uh, and decent uh, decent prices. So these are challenges that we we face, frankly, in international ed right now. And at, uh, in other destination markets, they're having similar challenges. So we're not alone uh, on our campus and other other campuses that are also in the U.S. experiencing this. Uh, it's a real challenge, and the colleges had to make some tough decisions budgetarily during the pandemic. And one of those to keep the lights on, to keep staff on board was selling properties that they weren't in the past getting a lot of use out of or maximum use out of. And certainly during the pandemic, they weren't. But it was a sh short-term fix to a long-term problem that's creating longer-term problems, I should say. Uh, and that's that's something, unfortunately, that uh, institutions now need to uh, put their heads together and come up with solutions, whether it's finding the right third-party providers that have access to quality housing options in in particular markets or, or some other some other very very quick fixes in renovating existing properties, purchasing and renovating, or making new new construction, which always is a two two three year process to to make a reality. So uh, it's a long road to a uh, to a solution. Uh, defining that right solution when it comes to international student housing, and no quick fixes, unfortunately, on the on the horizon for most schools, uh, without spending significant money that they probably, in some of these Australian university cases, uh, had to spend had to get that money in in the during the pandemic in order to keep staff on board. So we'll see what happens, but uh, it's going to continue to be a, a true issue for for international educators on many college campuses. And communication is going to be critical on what what your incoming student numbers are, going to, are looking like. I'm having weekly conversations with our senior leadership at UNLV about what we're, what we're planning to bring in in the fall and where the potential shortfalls will be uh, in terms of housing. Um, we have a limited number of beds on campus right now without building a new facility or buying a new property or renovating an existing property. So we have some limits in terms of what we can and can't do. So um, 
preparing leadership for the numbers you're expecting to bring in is and keeping those lines of communication open constantly is is going to be the the only way that you can make sure uh, you have cover for yourself uh, depending on what happens with uh, with the students that are going to be arriving in the fall uh, it's it, it is a university problem and you need to make sure that uh, it's not just an international admissions problem it's a university problem and that's providing quality housing affordable housing for new students particularly if you have a first year on-campus residency requirement those are things that you, uh, we really need to focus on uh, and making sure that we're delivering on uh, on our promises so let's get to our last question of the day and this is a, always as we do each 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 week we or so we uh, we try and take a look at how other countries are dealing with particular challenges that they're facing in their in their countries and how international education uh, is is uh, seen as even a solution to uh, particular challenges that uh, a country might be facing we've talked in the past about Canada how they have um, historically low birth rates uh, for from their domestic populations they've been a largely a country of immigrants over the last few years the last few decades couple three four five decades uh, and that is something that they um, in order to offset the decline in birth rate of domestic populations their focus is on bringing in increasingly larger numbers of immigrants to fill needs that they have in that country and they have created very uh, from a U.S. perspective, clearer paths from study, study, study to work uh, to residency to citizenship in Canada than we have here in the United States. It's a much more streamlined process than we have in the U.S. It's, it's more streamlined most places in the world than the U.S. But in terms of uh, what they're doing, it's it, it's uh, fueled by their international education growth uh, is tied to their uh, historical immigrant communities, but it's also tied to a, uh, in a real way to meet needs in the economy, uh, for particularly when it comes to jobs. And a recent article, uh, just putting the link to in the chat from ICIF Monitor, takes a look at Taiwan. And in Taiwan, they've been doing some interesting things uh, where they have also uh, a shrinking workforce. If, and this is a summary from, uh, from the ISIF monitor. If current forecasts hold a declining population by the start of the next decade, Taiwan uh, has launched an ambitious plan to attract up to 400,000 foreign workers. Uh, and uh, half of that uh, number is expected to be in uh, recruiting 200,000 degree-seeking international students by 2030. So, this is an important distinction when they say degree-seeking because historically when most countries are looking to expand internationally in, in terms of international education for the first time, they think, they think about uh, study abroad opportunities and some countries are much bigger senders than they are receivers of uh, international students each year. Uh, but when, uh, when they usually start international education efforts on campus in terms of bringing students in, you're typically going to find short-term exchanges are where they begin, uh, maybe a, a semester, summer program, maybe a year-long program, uh, as a way to get their way into a market uh, to generate source countries that will continue to send students to them. Uh, in Taiwan, uh, they've been receiving students uh, for many years from overseas. Uh, there was even news during uh, this past year when the uh, 
Russians invaded Ukraine. Uh, you saw uh, Taiwan offer places to displaced Ukrainian students who needed a spot uh, to continue their studies in Taiwan. So that happened. Uh, but part of uh, what Taiwan is doing now because of that need in the upcoming marketplace, uh, where they're, because fertility rates is to fall to the world's lowest by 2035, according to uh, South China Morning Post, in, in terms of looking at Taiwan, uh, that uh, you need a more stable labor force as a result uh, for its signature high-tech exports. And we know all know about the chip factories that are, are, are based in Taiwan, uh, some of the uh, batteries that they're producing uh, that, that's done in Taiwan, a lot of high-tech work is essential for driving the Taiwanese economy. Uh, so what they're attempting to do is attract special professionals uh, to take up roles in, in, in these tech sectors, including semiconductors, blockchain, finance, renewable energy development, all that. Uh, but part of their strategy is to look at international students that come for, importantly, degree-seeking studies. By 2030, they want to bring in 200,000 degree-seeking international students, up from a pre-pandemic base of only 63,000. So that's uh, tripling in size, more than tripling in size inside of seven years. So that's a significant, um, significant endeavor to, to undertake. And what their hope is that these uh, students that they're bringing in from overseas that are coming for degrees, uh, their focus will have be in getting them into degree fields uh, that are in need in the economy, uh, that will be uh, uh, increasingly in need in the economy. So uh, we certainly see a lot of uh, progress that Taiwan has made uh, in, the, in the past uh, few years international education-wise. Now they need to ratchet it up in order to meet their labor shortages that they're going to be having in the coming years. And international education is, is a direct element, um, per, a major element in that, in that country's plan to achieve um, stability in their labor market, in their economy. So that's one way of looking at it. And, it, and we don't have that necessarily in the United States. Perhaps we should, um, where we link study to work to employment and residency. So that's something that you would think would be, there are pathways to do that. They're very long and, and uh, uh, convoluted ways of getting to citizenship from uh, becoming in as an international student. You can actually say that when you first come in as a student because of the dual intent laws that are not prevalent, that exist for certain categories like L1 or H, H1, which are employment visas that can have dual intent, either non-immigrant or immigrant intent. Student immigrant status is a non student visa status is non-immigrant. So until that changes and becomes dual intent, uh, we are uh, we won't be able to make that pathway clear uh, because of the limits on uh, on how many people can get H1B each year because of the limits on the time that it takes to, to get a OPT approved. There's, there are so many challenges that international students face to get to that point where even they can think about green cards and citizenships after they're employed for a number of years. So Taiwan's got one solution. Canada has another. Other countries have other, other ways that they go about meeting needs in their economies through international education. So I think that's something in the United States we need to 
tie more closely together. Uh, we've always talked about the, the value of bringing international talent from abroad, uh, the number of foreign-born talent that lead uh, some of our top tech firms is clear, and we always talk about that here. But we don't always tie the governments. The government policy doesn't always meet those, those, the realities on the ground. So these are things that in the U.S. we do need to do a better job of and uh, have policy, immigration policies that make sense and allow for these kind of possibilities to exist. And when that happens, we'll become a much more attractive country and destination for international students. So that's all we have for this time on the Midweek Roundup. We thank you for making us a part of your, uh, your journey this week on international education news, and we'll be back in touch with you live from AIEA in D.C. next Wednesday. Uh, looking forward to that conference and catching up with fellow SIO colleagues around the country and the world. So until next time, have a great day. Cheers.